this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Since its inception in 2017, the viral Me Too movement has called more cultural attention to abusive behavior, creating a much-needed public space for women to speak up about the violence they've endured at the hands of abusers, and for women to speak more openly about their own ambitions, dreams, and desires. For the first time in history, there is a platform for women to speak, and, most importantly, to be heard. In 2019, we can add another voice to this ongoing conversation, Rima Zaman's radical assertion that to speak is a revolution. Rima Zaman's bold debut book, I Am Yours, A Shared Memoir, details what happens when women are silenced by the patriarchy, and what it means to find the power inherent in one's own voice. As a Bengali woman who immigrated to New York City to pursue her dream of becoming a stage actress, Zaman portrays herself as both driven and fearless, despite the many hardships she endures as a young woman in the city. From navigating toxic relationships with men in the industry, to finding the courage to leave an abusive marriage, Zaman touches on both the struggles and beauty of one woman's journey towards speaking her truth. Today on the New Books and Literature, join us as we sit down with Rima Zaman to learn more about her debut, I Am Yours, a shared memoir, available now from Amberjack Publishing. Rima, thank you so much for joining us today. It is my pleasure. Thank you so much, Zoe. So we're here today to talk about your debut memoir, which is called I Am Yours. Um, So the subtitle of your book is A Shared Memoir. So my first question to you is, what is a shared memoir? Uh, I love that question. Thank you. It's a shared memoir because I chose to reinvent the traditional genre of memoir and the structure of a memoir in that I break the fourth wall through the through the entire book. I speak directly to the reader as though they are my imaginary best friend from childhood whom I'm growing up with. Um, it begins the the book begins in the voice of a three year old child speaking to this presence in the room that they believe, or this presence in their life that they believe is their imaginary best friend, but it's actually the reader and it's the readers also engage with as though he or she or they are my inner voice. 
And I use this device to to demonstrate a few things. Um, as the book progresses and my life progresses, whenever I'm in an unhealthy or toxic relationship or environment, I grow distant from the the you in the book, the reader, the inner voice. And so I use that relationship to demonstrate the health or the or the toxicity in my immediate world, um, because that's how that's how life is. When we're when we're in a healthy place, we're able to be in connection with our inner voice. And it's when we're in a toxic place, we grow distant from that inner wisdom that we all hold and the relationship we have to other people in the world. And uh, yeah, so that's what I mean by shared memoir. And then through the process, you know. As I go through these painful experiences, I also use the memoir to be a manual for healing of these traumas. So the book is written precisely to heal the very traumas that we are exploring, and we do that together. It's a, it's a dialogue that happens, that occurs on the page, and that's what I mean by shared memoir, that it's a shared exploration and transformation from page one to the final page. So you mentioned that the book begins when you, as the speaker, is three years old. Um, you have an extraordinary memory for details of your childhood from growing up in Hawaii, then Bangladesh, then Thailand. Um, so as a writer, how were you able to recall your earliest years and articulate them on the page so clearly? Thank you. Uh, my mother says I've always had an extraordinary memory. And it's always been something that was just a part of my personality. And I never really interrogated why until I sat down to write a memoir. And my friends and family kept remarking, remarking that my um, agility and connection to past memories and my agility to move between, between them was just so potent. And that's when I did some research. And it turns out that people who are exposed to unusual circumstances and extreme circumstances like trauma at an early age, because trauma uh, floods the body with cortisol, cortisol actually, the stress hormone, it makes our brains attached to experiences all the more tightly. Those experiences become sticky and the information becomes sticky in our brains because it's as though we are trying to be stenographers of our own lived experience in case we need to be called as witnesses on what happened, what occurred. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. um, which is actually the nature of memoir, is to be witness to that which happened and that which was said and what was left unsaid. So in the early chapters of I Am Yours, you mention a specific instance where you witness mm -hmm. the separation of men and women in a mosque. Um, as well as in greater Bangladesh society. Uh, you also talk about the high expectations placed upon the bodies of mm. uh, especially young Bengali women. And so I'm curious, how did these realizations make you feel as a young girl? Definitely uh, less than and unworthy, and as though my entire value hinged on my physical appearance and my ability to be pleasing and acquiescent and uh, obedient with other people, specifically men. And uh, that was, that was um, an education I had to unlearn and fill with something new, which is to say self-esteem that's based on 
uh, a self-esteem that's independent to being pleasing and acquiescent to others. Your mother plays a central role in the book um, from mm-hmm. the scene that I just mentioned all the way through until um, the you as a speaker begins to write the book. Um, so she's an example as a woman oppressed by imposed silence, but also as a woman liberated by making her own choices. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I have two questions here relating to your mother. The first is, how did your experience growing up differ from your mother's? Mm-hmm. And second, what are some important lessons that you learned from your mother and maybe also that she learned from you? Thank you. I love that question. Uh, my mother is my favorite person. Um, and I'm very open about that. (laughs) She's my favorite person in the entire world. And I would not be who I am were it not for her. And that, and that remains true for my siblings, as well as my father and my dad, I would not be the person I am were it not for them. But it is, it especially applies to my mother because she has been the centrifugal force in who I am and who I became in, in honor of her. Uh, she says often that it's as though I became the woman she needed uh, to navigate her first marriage and to help her navigate that first marriage and to help her find validation in her voice and in her her skills, her her beauty, and in her brain. Um, because of the way she was cultural uh, culturally conditioned in Bangladesh. Um, she and that a lot of women, regardless of race or nationality or religion, can attest to. She was fed a very limiting narrative about herself that there was a glass ceiling to which she was able to grow, that her potential had a very clear uh, um, cutoff point, and that she was to live within those confines. And then I came along, and I was born as this fiery little girl. Uh, she says, I was always a precocious, curious child who was constantly asking her millions of questions. And the amazing thing about my mother, she has never, ever refused me an answer or denied my curiosity or my audacity. Even to this day, um, like, you know, I, I was a child who would pester her with a million questions and then she would actually answer them, which isn't the case with all parents. And she would a- answer my questions with such respect and admiration for me. She never made me feel like my questions were silly or, or um, silly or a waste of her time. And that has remained true my entire life to this present day. You know, when when I got this idea to write a very different, unusual uh, book, I told her the entire. I heard the soundtrack of "I Am Yours" in complete certainty and solidity in my head. And I told it to her, I explained the entire thing, how it was going to sound, what it was going to be like. And I told her all my dreams for it back in 2013. And she said, yes, I believe you. I'll, you know, stay in my home for a year and write the book. And even to the same, when I, when I told her last year, you know, I want to work on getting this into high school curricula nationwide. And she said, yes, I believe you can do it. You can certainly do this. Um, all of my large, audacious, daring dreams, she has always affirmed. And I wouldn't be the person I am were it not for that validation and that continued validation that has been my entire life. Um, that's uh, definitely the role she's played in my life. And I, and she says I've been the, the fire that has validated her fire in her life. 
So throughout the book and from a variety of scenes as disparate as the Bangkok red light district Mm -hmm. all the way to a Beaverton, Oregon elementary school, you talk consistently about your commitment to becoming a voice for the voiceless. Mm -hmm. Um, So what does this mean? And what are some ways that one can use their voice to speak up for those who have been silenced? Thank you. Um, You know, I was both uh, my, my mother and my father, they, you know, we're from Bangladesh. We were born in a third world country and they raised me with this, uh, this deep sense of respect toward duty, responsibility, and paying it forward. I was, I've always been cognizant of how lucky and fortunate I am to have been given the privileges of education, especially, um, and to never have to worry about water or food or shelter, which isn't something that the majority of my brethren back in my home country can attest to. And so being of service to others and using my personality and my work to be of service to others is a big part of who I am. It's a, it's the foundation of who I am. And so, um, that's, that's the lens through which I look at the world and I view the world and I analyze the world and I interpret the world. And so every single experience I've ever had from the time I was a child, I've always, my first response is, well, what does this mean? And how can I use this to educate myself to be a better voice for the voiceless? And, um, you know, my, a Genesis moment occurred when I was 11 years old and a cousin, um, 20 years, my senior tried to molest me and I was able to get away. And when I reported that incident, I was told boys will be boys and that this happens especially between cousins. And I remember thinking so clearly that, you know, if my parents are unable or unwilling to speak because of their conditioning or their fears, then I have to use this as further fuel and conviction to be a voice for the stories and souls that have been silenced. And so the way that this has manifested in my life is, you know, to be an author and also to be an advocate and activist and to work with young people. Um, I'm so grateful and proud that I'm Yours has been adopted into the curricula of, of several high schools beginning in Oregon. And now it's, it's we're in the process um, for the, ado- the book adoption to go uh, forward in various other schools around the nation. And, um, you know, the, the book came out on February 5th, and it was already in school systems this semester. And for the last four months, I've been on book tour, but I've also been go- going for um, class visitations. Every every two weeks, I visit a different school and a different group of students, and I get to talk to them and lead them through writing workshops on how to use art and writing as a way to turn our wounds into wisdom and our pain into purpose and how to use, how to um, examine our personal stories for calls to action. Uh, to be of service to a greater story. And I also had the enormous privilege of working with a team of educators and teachers in Oregon to create a curriculum that is based on I Am Yours. And the curriculum serves to engage students in, in writing prompts and craft lessons that are designed to help them increase their levels of gratitude, self-confidence, resilience, forgiveness, and uh, 
and sense of purpose in this world. And, uh, and then, and ultimately empathy for themselves and each other, which is a big, um, which is a big force in I am yours. It's a book that is designed to, uh, to increase your levels of empathy for yourself as well as others. And so this is definitely the way that in my life, being a voice for the voices has taken active partic- active manifestation. And then um, another way is, you know, the book came out in, on February 5th, and suddenly I became a repository of stories from other, other people, from readers who have gone through similar traumas, from sexual assault, as well as intimate partner abuse. And my, my, um, my email inbox, as well as my message inbox over Instagram and Facebook, just started filling up with dozens of emails and messages every day from people saying, I read your book, or I heard you on a podcast, or I read one of your essays, and this is my story, and I need your help. Or this is my story. I read your book. Yes, I understand that I have the, I, as a human being, I have value, and you have given me the encouragement I need to leave my abusive marriage, or you have given me the encouragement I need to speak up for something I believe in. And that's just been so, so validating. Um, and um, one of my favorite things is to hear from young, young men, our young male students in these high schools that I visit, that because they have had to read I Am Yours as part of their English class, as you know, uh, juniors or seniors, and some freshmen and sophomores have been reading it as well. Because they've read it in their English class, they have come forth and said, you know, I know I'm going to be a better man because of this book. Um, I didn't think this book was for me, but it's actually given me so much insight into how I wish to live my life as a man in this world. So it's just been, I mean, the journey has been bigger than anything I could have ever dreamed of. And, um, oh, in regards to, um, having readers saying, you know, like for instance, um, many of my readers are immigrants or undocumented immigrants and, and, uh, they have said, you know, I read your book and you're the first person who really represents me in the Me Too movement. And yes, your book has given me so much self-esteem and validation of who I am. However, I can't really grow to my fullest because there are certain legal um, obstacles in my path and I need your help when it comes to immigrate when it comes to certain justice like being access to justice is not an equal opportunity luxury right and so it's um, and I started just getting all of these call to actions from people all of this data that different readers would give me um, on how they've tried to, get away from an abusive marriage, but because something to do with their legal status in America or their immigrant status in America, they haven't been able to really have, uh, they haven't been able to apply for asylum successfully, or they haven't been able to get a transfer of status. Um, so they're no longer on their spouse's visa, but they're, or they're, fa- they're dependent on their spouse who is a citizen, but they now have their own working papers because um, a lot of women, like they're unable to leave a marriage that has grown toxic because they simply don't have uh, the financial means to then live and support their children on their own. And that becomes like economic abuse. And so um, I just, you know, I was sitting with this data for months there uh, 
And I just kind of, I started asking myself, what does this mean? What does this mean? And it made me uh, really interested in looking into current immigration law and asylum law and seeing and asking why are why are so many women telling me that it's really hard to to truly uh, have a free life? And um, I came up with two things, uh, two parts of immigration and asylum law that I've brought to different policy organizations and politicians, um, two parts of legislation that I would like to work on reforming. And so that's what I'm doing right now. I was just uh, speaking with Senator Gillibrand's team last week in New York about key policy reform that can empower our immigrant women and immigrant survivors of abuse. Um, so yeah, so those are all the different ways that we can be voices for the voiceless. And there's, you know, there's small, uh, passive ways. And then I've always been a person who likes going into the extremes. And so I'm always going to try to do the, the largest amount of impact possible. Mm -hmm. Well, that's wonderful, Rima. Um, and I'm glad that you're bringing all this up because it, it leads right into my next question. Um, Mm -hmm. Which is that so in in many, many ways, I'm yours is speaking to the current concerns mm-hmm. that have been brought up by the Me Too movement. Right. Um, and particularly in the discussion of the fraught phrase that you you just mentioned, boys will be boys. Mm-hmm. Right. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse, carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see, we could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Um, so you experienced some sexual harassment in high school at the hands of a male teacher. Mm -hmm. Um, you tried to speak up about this and you were silenced. Right. So my question is, um, can you speak to the ways that a culture of protection for sexual predators works to silence those women who do choose to speak up? Yes. Uh, thank you. I love that question. So a culture of protection is very one-sided because the protection we're talking about is the protection of abusers. And that kind of protection is... It's active inaction, right? It's um, and it's passivity, and passivity is complacency, and complacency is complicity. And that culture of protection is definitely complicit in the perpetuation of abuse culture, because abuse culture depends on accomplices, right? And that's certainly what my life has been um, an examination and demonstration of. Uh, I've always been a child and then a young person who came forward to speak my, to, to report the incidents. And then my story is about then being hushed and silenced by the very people who were meant to protect me. Uh, and so that's, that's part of why I'm so adamantly loud and vocal about and the way I use my voice as an author and activist is because um, it's because it, then I can be a direct um, I'm a direct threat to the culture of protection. 
because I have no fear about speaking out against it. And it's also why, I mean, I, I, I spend a tremendous amount of time on preparing myself with talking points, preparing myself for these moments when I get to have a microphone and speak, you know, at a speaking engagement, at a conference, at a podium, because every time I speak, I'm validating someone else's story, someone who doesn't have the ability or freedom or um, the audacity to stand up and speak, right? Because their pain is still painful. My wounds have scarred over, and therefore it is my responsible to speak for those who are still inside that trauma loop. So I Am Yours also touches on um, some personal traumas. Mm -hmm. And one of them is a years-long struggle with an eating disorder, which began when you were quite young. And um, so in the book you write, quote, in a strange, simple sense for me, anorexia has been a side effect of being a girl in this world. Mm. So in what ways are eating disorders linked to the unrealistic bodily expectations placed on young girls? I love that. Um, well, it's, it's, a, it's directly linked. You know, anorexia is our desperate our desperate method of trying to create control and self-validation in a society that makes us feel powerless and insecure and unworthy at, in, in numerous ways. And, um, you know, the, the more I, I, I mean, one of the reasons I sat down to write I Am Yours is because I could see that there was a clear connection between the silencing I had been through, I had gone through, and the the severity of my anorexia. The more heavily that I was silenced, the more anorexic I became. Because uh, the voice is energy, and one's truth is energy. And if we are denied our reality, if there's a violent denial denial of one's own reality taking place because of the culture of silencing, the culture of protecting abusers, that will manifest in some way. And for me, it manifested as self-harm. So because there was a direct correlation between the silencing of my truth and the severity of my anorexia, it then made sense that by writing this book and finally giving voice to the stories that had been silenced in my life, that process of writing and giving voice ended up being the thing that healed my anorexia. So in a later chapter, um, you shed light on an alarming practice by men who misuse the term feminist. Um, So an example that you give in the book is when your then husband states, quote, you attract too much attention, you're supposed to be a feminist. my question for you is, in your view, what is feminism really about? And what does a real feminist look like? Mm. Um, feminism is about having the power and agency to choose our choices. All genders should have equal access and opportunity to agency over, our, over their choices. That's what feminism is, that everyone has equal agency to choose their choices, to live the life they they wish to live uh, without hurting anyone else or overpowering anyone else in the process. 
That's what feminism is. And so anybody who decides to believe that and then live by that is a feminist. And um, yeah, and men who misuse or misuse the word feminist, uh, there's a lot of women who do that too. And it's always, you know, the, the, the reasons can be traced back to insecurity and unhealed rage of some kind, right? So then to switch gears just a little bit here, um, in your book, you touch on a number, speaking of choices, a number of other careers that you've held and lives that you've lived, um, including many years of stage acting um, and being a caretaker for young children in New York City. Um, And you comment on the stark difference in expectations when you were on the set versus when you were working with children in the home. Um, And So my question is, what was the experience of inhabiting those two worlds at once like for you? Oh, I I mean, I just loved, I I loved, um, I I will love any kind of contradiction because I find anything that's like fascinating is my favorite thing, (laughs) Um, which which is kind of a double-edged sword. It's also why in the past, before I got a real handle of who I am and, and anchored myself. Um, that's actually one of the reasons I would stay in abusive situations for as long as I did is because I would find the psychology of abuse and it's the psychology of an abuser fascinating. But anyway, so to go back to your question, um, yeah, I loved the duality. Uh, and, and I try to maintain that duality still where, you know, my, my life right now, there's a lot of fabulous, wonderful things happening uh, with successes and accolades. And at the same time, I make sure to, to know who I am, which is I'm supposed to be grounded in being of service to others. That is where my, my purpose lives. It's always to be in service of the incoming generation and the generations around us. Uh, and so that's always, it's always going to be a part of my life where I have one foot in the fabulous and, but both feet grounded in service. So in the first chapter of I Am Yours, as well as many of the later chapters, you describe the experience of writing the book itself mm. and revisiting certain scenes in your life. And you, you recall this as quote, pulling my anger room to room. Right. So what is the power of women's anger? What can women do with an anger like that? What is the value of that anger? Um, I love that. Well, um, I think, you know, it says this, I I believe it's page two of I Am Yours. Uh, Anger is a side effect of pain. And when one is in pain, one needs love, which is the entire thesis of I Am Yours. And that's why it's written as a love letter to the reader is we have, you know, right now, especially culturally, we're going through a wave of anger and disconnection and, um, and division. And, and one of I, my hypothesis as to why this book has been so loved by so many people of different demographics is because there is a deep need for tenderness as a bomb for the rage that we're feeling, for the confusion we're feeling and the pain we're feeling culturally, globally. Uh, and women, the anger we feel, the anger we felt particularly with, you know, the election of Donald Trump in 2016, the anger we have felt 
throughout our lives for the things that have been done to us and the things we have been witness to, that anger is so valid. That's the first thing I want any woman to realize. And our anger is shamed because, you know, socially, it's socially shamed because society tells us that to be the ideal woman, we must be ever smiling, pleasing, docile, polite, and perfect. And anger, there's no space for anger in that. And to be angry is to be, to live in contradiction of what it is to be an ideal woman. But I say that our anger is justified and valid because it clues us into injustice in the world. Because women are raised to be nurturers, we are provoked to anger when we experience or we witness injustice. And therefore, our, our rage holds oceans of wisdom. It holds, it's the signal that something bad has happened and something must be done to right the wrongs. On the process of writing, um, so throughout I Am Yours, you write about um, the books that you're reading at certain periods in your life, right? as a child, as a young adult, as a woman, um, that are influential to you. Mm-hmm. However, you also write that none, none of these books are quite the book that you're looking for. Right. So how did you come to realize that you wanted to write and share your own story? Well, so I'm from Bangladesh, and I was born there, and I was raised in Thailand, and then I immigrated to the States when I was 18. And I was raised in an international school, which was largely, uh, you know, just based on American curricula and, and education, and mainly with American teachers. And so the entire... Um, you know, all the books we ever read were by written by Americans, and most of them were narratives written by white Americans, with the central character being white American. And everywhere I looked, I couldn't see myself. And the reason why representation matters is because not because it's the politically correct and nice thing, but because to see ourselves is to find ourselves. If we don't see ourselves reflected in the pages of children's literature and young adult literature and middle grade literature and adult literature, if we don't see ourselves on in the proverbial boardrooms and actual podiums of life and the silver screen and, and everywhere, we feel invisible. Society gives us uh, quite loudly the impression that we are not important or worthy or interesting enough to be reflected on the pages and screens of society. That's what the lack of representation conveys. And so I use this this motif and I'm yours, the search for a book that mirrors myself and mirrors my own world to talk about the need for representation and the need for diverse stories and voices. Because diverse stories are actually just realistic stories. It's a realistic reflection of what our world actually looks like. And it is from there that um, I was called to write this book. I didn't set out to be an author. You know, I was, I trained to be an actress, but I really felt that life called me to write this book in the same way we were just talking about what rage can mean. And the powerful thing about any kind of rage or trauma or feeling invisible due to a lack of representation, any of those kind of adversarial uh, situations 
they are all calls to action and calls to purpose. And our task is to turn that fury into fuel, to turn those wounds into wisdom, to turn that invisibility into visibility for other people so that we can feel seen, heard, and loved. Well, wonderful. I just have one more question for you. Right. Mm -hmm. So I am yours is a phrase often repeated throughout your book, something like a mantra. Yeah. So what does it mean? And then also, what are you hoping that readers will come away from the experience of reading your book, understanding better? I love that. Um, It is a mantra. It is, um, it's an affirmation I've always used to remind myself that even in the deepest throes of pain, I exist and I belong to myself. And I am also a child of this world. And that in itself, even in the loneliest moments, I belong to this world. And um, that has been, that's been really um, heartening for me. And then it's also, I, I use that sentence in different ways throughout the book, because it's also the vow I have made to, for instance, the man who was my ex-husband, who who is my ex-husband. And so I show how, how selfhood is such a valuable and important element of life. And we have, before we can belong to anybody else, to truly belong healthily to someone else, we have to really do the self-work to understand what it is to belong to ourselves, right? Because otherwise we just keep on outsourcing our heart and outsourcing our body and outsourcing our emotions to other people without being grounded in our own self. And I'm Yours is a journey in learning how to ground our selfhood within ourselves in, so that our self-esteem and our sense of value lives independent to the opinion and actions of others, and which is the way to heal trauma, right? It certainly has been for me. Um, and what I wish for the reader to take away from this book, um, one of my favorite things really is that every day, the enormous privilege about being a published author and to be the published author of this particular book is that my life has become saturated with love through readers giving it to me. All day long, my phone blows up with notifications from readers who have just finished reading the book. And I can always tell because their message begins with, Rima, I live in, and they tell me a random, a faraway state or a faraway country. Rima, I have just finished reading your book. And I have to tell you, I feel so loved, so appreciated, and truly seen for the first time in my life. And I have to tell you, I too am yours. And it's, that's, I mean, it's everything. And, um, you know, and I, I was hoping that, you know, and it kind of circles back to our first question of what is a shared memoir? And I really went out on a limb to create this very unusual strange way of writing a memoir that was such a creative and professional risk. And, you know, I come from an, like I mentioned, I come from an acting background, but I specifically come from uh, a background in not conservatory, conservatory training. So, you know, like places like NYU, it's a conservatory training in TV and film and theater. 
I went to Skidmore College and I just returned from my reunion this past weekend where I spoke on the Distinguished Alumni Panel. And they were asking me, you know, how did I take my acting training and segue this into a successful career as an author? And I said, you know, the thing is, in Skidmore, we studied absurdist theater. (laughs) You know, those kids who were like in unitards and like walking on the walls? That was us. Like, you know, like um, we studied how to reinvent traditional forms of art and reinvent them, not for the sake of reinvention, but to do it in a way so that you're dismantling an old and perhaps an antiquated paradigm and you're introducing a new way to look at the world and engage with the world and engage with your audience. So that's my training is to take craft and then to take something apart and create something new to offer it as another piece in the canon. And so when I set out to write a shared memoir, I knew that I couldn't, you know, break the fourth wall for the sake of breaking the fourth wall. Because if you do it in, in, inelegantly or unintentionally, it can start, start to become cheesy or, or abrupt. So I sat down and I, I came up with the entire physics of what this world would look like. And the book works because it was done in a very deliberate fashion. And that's why at the end, readers email me and message me that I am yours. Wow. Rima, thank you so much for your time. This has been so enlightening. Thank you. Yeah. Best of luck. I can't wait to read your next book. Thank you so much, Zoe. Um, Thank you. It was such an honor and pleasure to be on your podcast. My name is Zoe Bossier, and this has been an interview with author Rima Zaman on New Books in Literature, a channel on the New Books Network. Thanks for listening.